Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The opioid epidemic continues to grip the nation, but alcoholism deaths continue to rise in the U.S., especially among middle-aged women. The increase has been somewhat obscured, too, by the opioid epidemic. Joining me, Abby Bonnell, on feedback at the iHeartRadio studios, it's a pleasure to welcome back Dr. Todd Thatcher, Chief Medical Officer for Valley Behavioral Health in Utah. If somebody is suffering from alcoholism, it's a very isolated, lonely, depressive state. Yeah, well, alcohol is a depressant. It just depresses your central nervous system. So uh, sometimes that ends up being the reason that people abuse alcohol is they want to have that depressed state. Maybe they have an anxiety problem or something like that going on. But yeah, it's it's a spiral downward that, that causes a lot of problems. Signs. Everybody always said, well, I didn't realize it was that bad. And most of us have somebody we know, whether it's a loved one, whether it's a co-worker. Alcoholism is so prevalent in this society. The signs often start to be isolation when it starts to get really severe. They sort of kind of distance themselves. They don't want to do things like they used to do socially. And um, you know what? They're drinking at home, drinking alone. All kinds of issues start to be really very serious red flags, doctor. Oh, exactly. You know, and in, in substance abuse, what we're looking for primarily is a functional impairment. How is this negatively impacting your health and impacting your social life, impacting your job, getting you into legal problems, these kind of things that make people wake up and realize, you know, as, as people judge for themselves how alcohol is affecting their life, they're not often very insightful. And so it sometimes takes reminders from the outside, more objective criterion or indicators that there's a problem. And so, you know, on that spectrum, you can have very dramatic things like a DUI or you get fired or, you know, someone walks out on you and divorces you or something like that. On the more subtle end of things, uh, it gets to be like you're talking about, uh, changes in behavior. People are more angry. They're more physically assaultive. Um, they're more moody. They're more isolative. Um, they start, you just start detecting lies that stories don't add up. These are classic symptoms that something's probably going on with substance abuse because all those are, are part of abusing any drug. We, we often say that the first casualty of substance abuse is the truth because you can't really abuse a drug and, and not be, have some level of deceit about it either to yourself or for those around you. And you're absolutely right. Things don't make sense. You know, the stories don't add up. You know, they're never available or, you know, you don't see them all weekend long because they've got some other thing to do or they take longer to get home or, you know, they're meeting friends for dinner or there's so many different excuses. When does it become a problem? I would say probably if you see any kind of excessive drinking and they would say, I think four to five drinks is considered excessive drinking in one single sitting in one occasion for women, more so for men. 
but really, uh, I think they say 14 drinks a week for a guy. I mean, I don't know how they come up with these numbers because I think you just kind of look at somebody and if they just want more than one or two glasses of wine, that becomes a problem. They don't want that. They want the bottle. And then after the bottle, it's probably the second bottle too. And that's where we need to step back and go, whoa, okay, we need to kind of get some intervention going here, some therapy. And a lot of judgment comes with it and stigma and a lot of fear. And this is why a lot of people will not step forth and get help in the nick of time. Right. And, you know, you bring up a good point is, you know, who decides how many drinks is is too many? And what's behind those kind of numbers? Well, what's behind those kind of numbers is... They will, you know, sit with big spreadsheets and take thousands and thousands of people and known things about the population health and the, and what they know about people drinking. And they'll just correlate, okay, for men, five drinks in a day or for women, four drinks in a day. And you can, you know, calculate that out for a week, for the week. But they'll, they'll just look at it and go, okay, it, it, when do the, at what drink level do people start experiencing typically health problems? Um, you can also throw into some of those analyses running into problems with the law and losing jobs and this and that. So that's pretty much where it comes from because it's very interesting. Um, those numbers, even though we use them as guidelines, and, and I use them as, as a substance abuse specialist in, in helping people know when enough is enough just from a health standpoint and good medicine, it's very interesting because the World Health Organization and the American Cancer Society have both listed alcohol as a carcinogen. Not, not at any, you know, they're not qualifying that as well. At five drinks, it's a carcinogen. It's at any amount. And the World Health Organization was able to show that in really high-quality studies over the last few years. And I remember when those studies came out about five years ago, and um, it came to me as on an email, you know, professional emails that I get. And, it, of course, was great interest to me. But I made a little mental note. I thought, well, that's huge news. And I waited over the next few days for it to become huge news, and it never did. You couldn't find it reported anywhere. And very few people know that alcohol has been listed as a a carcinogen in any degree or amount. But it's interesting, most people that you talk to, and your listeners are out there listening to this, raise their hand, keep both hands on the steering wheel, right? But Mm -hmm. nod in, in agreement. How many of your listeners have heard about the studies that were done out of Europe that said, oh, a glass of wine a day is good for your health? Right. Straight out of France. We were were all told, red wine, that's good for you. Right. So it's good for your digestion. Right. Which is interesting because those studies have largely been dismissed by the professional organizations. The American Heart Association has said that's not good advice to follow. The benefits you'll gain from that do not outweigh the risks that you're incurring by using alcohol like that. But people run around, they know that figure, but they have no idea that, that these big organizations and national societies have listed alcohol as a carcinogen. So... Kind of my professional guess at this point is over the next five to ten years, you'll probably see these numbers of where we draw five, five, uh, you know, drinks a day, four drinks a day. As we start putting those data sets together over time, uh, you'll probably see those drink numbers come down to where right now, you know, five drinks a day would be acceptable for a male by what the standards are. I would expect those to start coming down to be much lower over the coming years. And when you talk about cancers, increased breast cancer risks certainly rise with alcoholic consumption. They've seen a a correlation between both of those and any of the digestive cancers too, including mouth cancer. Mm -hmm. Well, it it makes sense I think for most people to understand, okay, if you put alcohol in contact with body tissue, okay, I can see how that could damage that. So you drink it, it's got your whole mouth and your tongue and you've got your esophagus and down into your stomach and then to your liver as your liver metabolizes it. 
you know, and those do have very high direct correlation rates uh, with alcohol use. The surprising things I think that we found out from some of these studies in the World Health Organization is stuff you wouldn't expect, like skin cancer, you know, breast cancer, you wouldn't really expect is not coming in direct contact necessarily with the alcohol. You still get elevated rates with them as well. And so that's been one thing that we've been able to learn and how powerful a carcinogen it is. Okay. The approach is, well, they're drinking too much. Just stop. Why don't you just stop? Well, explain, doctor, why? You know, I, I have to say this. Um, back in the 80s, when Nancy Reagan had her Just Say No campaign, they, they, she just got pummeled, you know, from, from saying something so silly and so simple. Well, the funny thing is here, 35, 40 years later, whatever it's been, 35 years, as a substance abuse specialist, I can tell you, the thing that we try to do and get people to start doing in treatment of any kind for substance abuse is learn to say no. That, that really comes down to that. Now, there's complicating factors to saying no. For example, the power of the drug itself on you. And part of the diagnostic criterion for making a substance use disorder diagnosis is... Uh, it, it comments on that power that that drug has because normally you're right. People would say that's too dangerous or that's got undesirable whatever's to it. So I'm not going to go there. Not going to walk on the edge of that cliff. It's not worth it. But in substance abuse, the substance becomes so powerful a drive for you to have it that you say, you know, forget it. I don't care what the consequences are. I don't care if I get another DUI. I don't care if I lose custody of my children. I don't care if I lose my job. I don't care if it affects my health. I'm still going to use anyway. And so that's part of the disease process because that's not really normal human thinking. Human beings are much more fear averse and averse to negative outcomes. They'll tend to stay away from those kind of things except your thrill seekers. And so you're right. For someone to continue to use a drug over and over, even though it's causing great havoc in their life, is hard for people not going through that to really understand because it's not how normal human thinking goes. No, it's reckless behavior and it's so self-destructive and anybody on the sidelines is watching it going, stop. Right, and those people sitting on the sidelines are also having a hard time understanding it because they're getting damaged. And then they'll say, don't you love us? Don't you care? And, and the problem is, is you have to realize at some point it gets substance abuse and alcoholism will become severe enough that actually they care more about the alcohol than they do about the family, that they do about all these negative consequences. And of course, at that point, you're at a severe level of the disorder. Okay, severe levels. It can end, and you touched upon this, brushes with the law, mm -hmm. DUIs. Mm -hmm. This is not always a bad thing. This stops somebody in their tracks. And now we have a different approach within the judicial system. Once, we would just lock them up and go serve your time and think about it, repent. Mm -hmm. And now there's a totally different approach to it. It's called treatment. Exactly. And I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because it's not really well known. It's something that, um, you know, I as a substance abuse specialist, as Chief Medical Officer of Valley Behavioral Health, as our company, this is one of the things that we excel at and specialize in is these alternatives to incarceration programs. And so we treat thousands of individuals in, uh, in Salt Lake County, Summit, Tooele Counties, um, through the, the judicial system. And basically how it works, it was the, the whole idea was started back in the late 60s um, in Ohio where you had people sitting around in the court system saying, you know, we've got a lot of power in the court system to change society and do better, so why don't we create a thing called mental health court? And the idea was that we will use the power of the bench and society's laws 
to take people that are that are not being well served, being locked up and incarcerated, and kind of are doing a revolving door. And the idea was if we can treat the underlying substance abuse disorder or the mental health disorder, that we can then shut down that revolving door, get them back into society, get them back to work. And so they launched that. We've discovered over time it's it's spread across the country primarily because it is cheaper for society to treat people outpatient in these programs than it is to have them locked up in jail. And jail is a place of incarceration, and people should look at it like that. They're not treatment facilities. They don't claim to be. They don't refer to themselves as that. They provide some basic you know, needs there, but they're not treatment facilities. So if we can get them into an outpatient facility to do that, um, that's going to help. Now, th- th- one thing I have to say about that is if you're a person who either yourself or your loved one is getting involved with that, you want to make sure that the court you're involved with or the treatment programs that the court is referring you to actually have specialized knowledge and certification to be doing that kind of work. Because um, I've just seen it you know, in my career happen where yeah, a court can be well-meaning, but if they are not uh, savvy to the, how the mental health and drug court systems work, and they refer out, it, it often doesn't result very well. A well-run mental health or drug court program, some signs you can see to do that is, is that the uh, judges are typically, either they select themselves out or selected by you know, their, their supervisors because they have interest and some sort of skill to be working in that environment, where they, the, the judge has to understand this is mental illness, this is substance abuse, understand the basics of that, and be able to really balance the, the needs for justice in our society and the need for treatment. And that's really a key thing. Now, with the judge, you'll always have the prosecution and the defense. So that helps keep that balanced out as well, to where the state can jump in and go, no, I'm sorry, this guy has relapsed too many times. He needs to go back to jail as a reminder. On the other side, you've got the defense attorney to go, no, let's give treatment another try. Let's change a few things. Working with them, you'll have a full treatment team that comes to the court. And that's really important. Um, if you're always showing up to court with your loved one and it's just you and the attorney and the judge, they're not being well served because your treatment team should be there as well to keep the, the court informed um, on what's going on with the treatment, help the judge uh, make good decisions that uh, you know that keep everything balanced. So a well-run system does that. You also then have probation and parole officers involved that um, you know help with that as well. Um, drug testing should certainly be a basic part. The latest recommendations from the American Society of Addiction Medicine are people that are in active treatment for substance abuse should be tested randomly at least once a week. And with high-quality testing, they basically rejected dipstick testing. It's cheaper, but you need the better testing to really be able to uh, get down to it. And the view that drug testing is the fundamental piece in in, in substance abuse treatment because... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As I said before, the first casualty of substance abuse is the truth. Yes, and lies you, yeah, come forth very easily. Everybody's wasting their time and money 
if the person's still using, lying about it, and we're not detecting it. So they come to drug court or something every week, and they, oh, I'm doing fine, Judge. Doing great. Telling all the family they're doing great. In reality, they're still using. Everybody's just wasting their time. The only way that you can keep people honest is to do high-quality drug testing. So that's got to be a key feature of it, too. But to go back to what you're talking about, this being actually a good thing that people get criminal charges. From our standpoint, at Valid Behavioral Health, from my standpoint as an as addiction medicine specialist and as the chief medical officer, um, we often are very relieved when people get criminal charges because what it does is it brings more power to the treatment to be able to actually get people to take this seriously. And, you know, any of your listeners out there who I'm sure there's plenty of people nodding their head going, yeah, they've been through this kind of a thing where they try and try everything in the book with their loved one and they just never seem to engage. They, they just feel powerless to do anything. Um, you know, obviously we don't want people hurt. We want society to be safe. But, you know, if someone gets a DUI and there was nobody hurt, that's actually probably a good thing because now they're going to be, um, it's a wake-up call. That's a, a They're going to be treated. Right. Well, hopefully they'll be treated if, you're, if, you're, if you can hook yourself with willing and, and able to enter into a court agreement because not all courts offer it. Not all courts are set up for it. So that's why I say you know, Valid Behavioral Health has decades of experience in, in dealing with this. And I would say this too, not only with family members and friends as their loved ones get into criminal problems because of their, their drug abuse, but also staff. As we bring on new staff and train people to work in this field, we have to train that staff to realize that you know getting a criminal charge actually can help us to propel the treatment forward and to not fight and resist that process. Because a lot of times, you know, family members, friends, I, I get it, they want to keep their loved ones out of trouble. They'll go, no, we'll do everything but do that drug court route. And the problem is that most people, if they run into a substance abuse problem, they get caught, their job's on the line, someone's threatened to walk out on them, they could lose their kids. Most people with a little bit of treatment will actually stop using, Okay. So if you know somebody then who has had that happen and then they failed treatment attempt number two and treatment attempt number three and then four and five and six, every time you fail, you're, it becomes more difficult to help that person go sober. So here's where the rub is. It gets more difficult the more times you fail. Your treatment has to also become more significant or more focused, have more come to the table um, than previous attempts. So, for example, someone gets into you know, a substance abuse problem, you send them to your local you know, behavioral health clinic to get treated, and they do a little therapy, and then they relapse. Okay, well, next time, maybe you ought to consider doing therapy again plus medications. You know, or they go to a residential facility, and then that doesn't work. Well, you have to keep escalating the treatment level to match what the need is. And so, so what happens is someone gets to the point where they get criminal charges, that's a severe level of substance abuse. It requires a severe or a significant level of treatment. And that's where um, we're very supportive of, and so is society, that at that point, you probably need the treatment level where you have a judge, and you have the attorneys, and you have your legal agreement, and you have your probation officer, and you have you know, treatment that's going to make sure that, okay, if you don't participate in this treatment, we'll consequent you. And in saying all that, there is that side of, of treatment, you know, like through drug court. But what makes drug court really work 
is that everyone at the table is the champion for that person. Right. And saying, we're here to help you, but you must engage in treatment. And we're serious. If you don't, then that was your decision, and you'll have to just suffer the consequences of you know, the, the criminal charges that we're holding kind of at bay while you participate. But that really is a powerful motivator for people and has been shown to be very effective, and that's why counties and states continue to fund it. So if, if your loved one ends up in that kind of a system, I'd recommend to get educated about it. You can do it on a Google search. You can talk to people, talk to the people at the court, become educated about it, and I think you'll become actually very supportive of it and, and overcome some of the initial you know, resistance to having your loved one associated with Shame, the system. Shame, disgust, exactly. horror, yeah. devastation. It's all normal Get over stuff it to have. because this is probably going to be the beginning of their new life which is hopefully going to be sober and clean. Yeah, exactly. And from my position, I get to see, I guess, a broad spectrum of this. So people entering into that will just see that, that, that shame and that, you know, problems and just, I can't believe my loved one's involved with the court system. Well, if you could see the other side mm-hmm. where we get to see people successfully complete and you go to the graduation ceremonies and they, they all, you know, at a drug court, if you do something well or graduate, they'll clap. They have, a, they have some courts, they'll have a cake, they'll celebrate. I mean, it's a very heartwarming, tear-jerking kind of an experience. And if you could see that at the other end and go, yes, that's what I want for my loved one, mm-hmm. then you'd probably be more willing to go, okay, let's do what's necessary then to get you to that point and get your life back. Treatment options, lots of them, depends on the person and their level of addiction or dependence on alcohol or whether it is substance abuse. We're focusing on alcohol here today in this program. But uh, 30-day programs, 90-day, 120-day outpatient, all depends on the specific case. Right. It's, it's a bewildering uh, set of choices. You drive around town, you see the billboards, so on and so forth. So to just to bottom line it for your, for your listeners and to help them to kind of navigate that pathway... Um, alcohol treatment really kind of started, I guess, formally in the United States uh, in the early 1900s with Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, besides your local priest or someone trying to help you with the problem. And so Alcoholics Anonymous formed a 12-step accountability system, which is shown to be pretty effective. And um, to this day, we still couple those as a standard of care. If you have an alcohol dependence problem and we're treating you at Valid Behavioral Health, our recommendation is that you find a, a, some sort of a, an Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program Primarily, the success has been shown there because of the accountability factor. You have a sponsor who is also has an alcohol history and is going to call you on your, on your bluffs and on your lies and is going to also be a resource for you to call when you're at 1 o'clock in the morning and about to drink and need to talk to somebody. So that accountability piece is really important. So you can go that route. Now, to help people understand, therapy kind of grew out of that kind of a tradition and getting a little more involved with well, if your anxiety or your depression or whatever other issues, maybe sexual abuse histories, are contributing to you using alcohol, well, it certainly get those underlying issues treated. So that's kind of where therapy would, would fall in or come into play. There's been a tradition over the years um, for, for those, two, those two groups, broad movements, to say, no, we got it. You don't need medications for this. There, there has been some uh, thoughts out there that you're not truly sober, if you're taking a medication to help you stay sober. Well, I don't, I don't hold that view at all, and that's actually switched a lot in about the last 10, 15 years. So let me talk to you a little bit about what's called medication-assisted treatment, which is evidence-based. You can go look at the SAMHSA website, and they'll have plenty to read on that. Just Google medication-assisted treatment. And what it is, it's the combining of therapy, 
to deal with those underlying issues and accountability and um, also medications as appropriate. So we've talked in previous shows about using Suboxone and Methadone for opiates. Let's talk about what's available for alcohol because there's some pretty effective medications. We'll start with what's called Antabuse. Some people have heard of that. It's a medication that's been around for decades. It basically, if you're drinking and you're on Antabuse, it'll make you sick, like nauseous and vomiting and you get flushed skin and your heart will pound out of your chest. You'll feel like you're going to die, but you're not. And so... It literally is like attaching your mom or something to your your handcuffed at the left wrist, and when you drink, you get a hand slap. It's designed to be that. And when we teach prescribers who work at Valley Behavioral Health and other staff members, go own that. You know, a lot of people go, oh, "That's distasteful." It's not distasteful at all when you understand we're trying to save these people's lives. Mm. And so um, you own that. It's it's meant to be aversive treatment. It's also extremely effective if if and this is a huge if if the person takes the medication. And that is a big if. Right. And that's the number one reason, if you go look at the studies, that people fail out on on, uh, antabuse studies is that they stop taking it. Okay. So if you have, especially in a drug court situation, we do it all the time as a matter of course at Valid Behavioral Health, we'll say, okay, Abby, you need to come down and you'll take the antabuse in front of us three times a week. Mm -hmm. Great. And then we're able to monitor it that way. And I can tell you from experience, having treated thousands of people with antabuse, it's maybe one out of 100 people will continue to drink on antabuse. Once we get you on antabuse, you're done drinking because you won't, you know, you'll try it once or twice and feel so sick, you'll forget it. And that's what it's designed to do. So to help with cravings, we have other medications like naltrexone and uh, another medication called Camprol that can help us. So we have, these are all FDA approved uh, first line treatments for alcohol dependence. So they can't do the work on their own. You need to couple. That's why it's called medication assisted treatment. The medication assists with the rest of the treatment, which is you need to get in therapy and start working through the problems as to why you keep using. For any family member or anybody who has a friend or coworker, what can we do to help once they are going through all of the therapy, the healing process? What are some of the warning signs also? Because you know what? It, it has a huge impact on families if they have a loved one who is dependent and abusing such a substance. What should they be looking for? Are, what are the warning signs of any failures? I know the success rates are fantastic. You're always going to have some failure rates. Sadly, society's not perfect, nor are we. So what should we be looking for? So someone's in treatment and they're, they're failing, and what are the warning signs of that? Well, they'll stop attending. They'll have excuses for why. Well, I didn't go to therapy today. Well, why not? And they'll have some excuse, okay? Or they, I don't take those meds anymore. I don't need them. They'll, they'll be a backing away from treatment, which is not good. Or I'm, they start missing drug tests. I don't need to do that drug test. That's always a, a warning sign as a problem. Um, recurrence of lies. The story isn't matching, okay? Just like we talked about at the beginning of the, the, the segment, where um, lying, isolating themselves, you can't account for their time, uh, money problems, they start asking you for money, they need money for this and that, can't make the rent. These are all kinds of, of signs that things are getting diverted to a drug life or an alcohol life. And um, so th- that those will be your warning signs, besides obvious things, you just catch them with the bottle and you know, they smell like alcohol. Clearly. Right? Okay, success rates. I want to look at the more positive outcomes here. You see them all the time through your treatment facilities. Uh, Really, it's life-changing. It brings somebody back to life again. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I would stay in this business if if everybody failed. It would just, you just couldn't take that as, as a human being. So the success rates we see can be quite significant. 
Um, we have some internal studies and also uh, studies we've done with some outside organizations that showed as much as a 50 to 60% success rate in uh, helping people go sober, complete probations, and move on with their lives. Um, one thing I do want to, uh, I guess, talk to your listeners about is that if you get to the situation where they failed two, three, four programs, it's getting worse, you're getting the law involved, okay? Um, you often have to shift your thinking from they're going to go sober and they're never going to use again to a, you know what, if they're currently using every day and it's just intolerable and it's destroying everything, if they relapse, if we can get them to the point where they relapse once, once a quarter or once every six months and you get five or six months of, of sobriety, in some of those cases, that can be tremendous success because you've reduced the harm that's happening to that person tremendously and you get them back in housing and you get them back to jobs or back to repairing family relationships. And so we just see that a lot. And even, even in the treatment side, we have to remind ourselves, hey, you have to celebrate these moments when, when you see them because for someone to go that many uh, substance abuse you know, treatments and continue to fail, um, to, to, to have them go completely sober for the rest of their life happens, okay? But you need to be prepared in case it doesn't. What will be your response? The response is you act again, you get around them, you get them back into treatment, and you push for another length of, of time in treatment. You understand what I'm saying? And so sometimes in those severe cases, and it's really no different than when people are dealing with other chronic disease states, because alcoholism is a chronic disease state, if you're dealing with diabetes, you know, the expectation that someone will start diabetes treatment and then never have a blood sugar problem the rest of their life is ridiculous. Please point out your website right now. You have facilities throughout the region here at Valley Behavioral Health. Yes, our website's easy to get to. It's www.valleycares.com. You can also reach our, our main phone line. That's 888-949-4864, 888-949-4864. You can also get that information on the website, which is valleycares.com. My thanks to Dr. Todd Thatcher. Chief Medical Officer with Valley Behavioral Health for joining me, Abby Bonnell, on feedback. Thank you, Doctor. Always a pleasure to be here, Abby. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.